Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for StreetFins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 12, and today I have Alex Patel with me as co-host. Alex, would you like to remind our listeners of who you are? Hey, Rohan. Glad to be back. I'm Alex, and I'm a current freshman at Stanford, as well as a co-founder of StreetFins. So, Alex, last time you were co-host was back in an episode we recorded in July. Since then, you've started freshman year online at Stanford. How has college been so far? Adjusting to the online format has been a little tough, but we're getting through it. Sadly, it doesn't feel like I'm in college yet, but hopefully next year we will be back to normal. Yeah, online freshman year certainly has been a grind, but there are definitely some conveniences due to the digital nature of college now. Technology has definitely changed education in the COVID-19 era. I totally agree, Alex. Technology has not only changed education, but it's also been changing the field of finance and the money management industry for quite some time. And the focus of today's episode is on the innovative topic of automated money management. Now, Alex, why are we taking a look at this topic? Well, Rohan, automated money management, or AMM for short, which is exactly what it sounds like, has become increasingly popular in recent years. As technology has advanced in finance, more and more people, especially millennials and younger generations, have been wanting more streamlined and less time-consuming ways of managing their money. Many established financial services companies and new fintech startups have started products that are focused on AMM. Almost all the major financial services companies, Vanguard, TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, have some kind of automated digital money management product. Right. And the market for automated money management just keeps growing. It's estimated that more than $1 trillion will be managed by these AMM services, driven in large part by people who like the ease and savviness of automated money management and who are driven away by the costs and underperformance of active management. Exactly. And our guest is perfect to have on to simplify this growing industry. He is the founder and CEO of one of the biggest automated money management companies today and is a former venture capitalist. It should be an enlightening conversation, pulling back the curtain on an innovative, game-changing industry. So let's just get to simplifying. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. As technology has been used to improve financial services, an entire industry has been forming to make investing, saving, banking, and all kinds of money management easier and better. In the news, people have described this industry with many different names. Robo-advisors. Digital wealth management. Automated money managers. Our guest is Andy Ratcliffe, the CEO of Wealthfront, one of the most successful automated money management startups. His background is super impressive, so I'll just let him introduce himself. My name is Andy Ratcliffe. I was a career venture capitalist for almost 25 years, the last 10 of which was at a venture firm that I co-founded called Benchmark Capital. I retired about 15 years ago from the venture business in order to teach at my grad school alma mater, Stanford, and to become a trustee at my undergrad alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. As part of my work at Penn, I sit on the endowment investment board. And that led me to an idea about automating investment management as a way of democratizing access to sophisticated financial advice, which is how I came to start Wealthfront, which I now run. So that's a little bit of a background on me. 
Yeah. So you mentioned that you went to Wharton and then later to Stanford, but I'm curious, you know, Alex and I were both 18 years old and we sort of developed our interest in finance when we were in high school or even before that. So I'm wondering what got you initially when you were 18, when you were studying at college, what got you interested in finance and technology? Finance, I didn't know anything about until I got to college. I had chosen Wharton because my dad had a small business and I wanted to go to undergraduate business school because I wanted to go to work for him when I graduated. At least that's what I wanted to do until about two weeks before I graduated college, I changed my mind. So I was interested more in management and operations than I was in finance, about which I knew nothing. It wasn't until I took my first finance course that I fell in love with it. And then on the technology side, my high school was one of the first to get a mini computer. And so in my senior year, we got this thing that I got to play with and I fell in love with it. And that's what caused me to study computer science as well. And actually, when I graduated college, I first pursued a career in software development, but I wanted to live in Manhattan because I grew up right outside of New York and New Jersey, and I couldn't find something that respected the developers, so I ended up choosing my other path, which was finance. That's incredible. I'm curious to know, so you you were on the Penn Endowment Investment Board, and you began seeing that all this financial advice, it was sophisticated, but that not many people had access to it. So how did this lead to Wealthfront? And what was the sort of problem or the market you were addressing? Well, first, let me start by saying that the idea that entrepreneurs look at a market, try to find a problem and come up with a solution does not explain how great companies are built. That's what you read because companies revise their history to fit that narrative because that's the narrative most customers want to buy. That's not how great companies get started. Usually it starts with an inflection point in technology that allows you to build a product and then you find a market that wants to do it. So in my case, I had known about a bunch of application programming interfaces that had become available in the brokerage world. And I was sitting in a Penn Endowment meeting and they were talking about how they managed their endowment. And the premier university endowments are the best managed pools of capital in the world. And it struck me that what they did was highly manual. And I knew all of the other premier university endowments because they had been investors in my venture fund benchmark. And a number of my friends sat on those committees as well. So looking at how they did what they did, much of which was manual and spreadsheet based, I thought, hey, if you automate this with software, you can do an 80-20 on endowment investing, which is radically superior to the way the average individual investor in the United States invests. And by doing so, you can democratize access to this. Now, democratizing access was interesting to me because when I was a venture capitalist, a number of the people that I had recruited to my portfolio companies who went then went on to have financial success through their companies succeeding, would come to me for investment advice. What do they do with their new money? And I could never tell them to do what I do because they couldn't afford the minimums. And that's what really struck me that that was a really interesting audience to address. Definitely. Now, you know, I kind of want to get into the nitty gritty of automated money management. And I think to start, could you let us know a little bit about what is this idea of self-driving money? What does that mean? 
Well, self-driving money is the vision for our business. We currently offer high-interest checking accounts and very low-cost investment management. We're tying all this together through our vision of optimizing and automating all of your personal finances. Now, what that means in practice is that very soon, you'll be able to direct deposit your paycheck with us. We will automatically pay your bills, and then we will route the remaining money or your savings to the most appropriate destination based on your particular and situation and goals, which we learn through the accounts that you link to us. Our average client links something on the order of three and a half financial accounts to us. So that can take the form of a bank account, a brokerage account, their mortgage, their credit cards, all sorts of financial information. So it's basically putting your personal finances on autopilot, which is something people aren't very good at and don't enjoy doing. Right. Now, in terms of these automated money management services, such as Wealthfront, what are the ideas or theories in finance and investing that you know these AMM services are trying to base themselves on or project into the world? That's a great question because this is one of the most misunderstood things about what we do. I've often heard people ask us about our algorithms. We have no fancy algorithms. Actually, what we're doing is just taking what's best practice among the best financial advisors in the world and automating what they do. Now, the basis for what we do in investment management is diversifying and rebalancing your portfolio of low-cost index funds. Research has proven over and over and over again that it is almost impossible over the long term to outperform the market, so you shouldn't try. Rather, you should buy index funds, which generate the market return. By diversifying, you radically improve your risk-adjusted return. The approach we use to diversification is something called modern portfolio theory, which was invented in 1958 and won the Nobel Prize in 1990. Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp, who is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, were the two scholars who were awarded the Nobel Prize for that. So that is really simple and straightforward. We make absolutely no attempt to time the market, no attempt to figure out which markets are under or overvalued. It's all based on the expected return of each asset class, the volatility or risk of each asset class, and the correlation among asset classes. Now, on top of that, we add value through something called tax loss harvesting, another service that's been offered for decades. By the way, all premier endowments and great financial advisors use modern portfolio theory as the basis for what they do. Unfortunately, many try to add value to it, and by trying to add value, they actually destroy value. One of the ways that we add value that's deterministic or takes no risk is that we look for losses in portfolio that we can harvest when an ETF that represents U.S. stocks, for example, goes down, we will sell it and replace it with a substantially identical or highly correlated index to maintain the risk and return of your portfolio. But by capturing that loss, we can actually lower your taxes. And by lowering your taxes, we increase your cash flow. The amazing thing about tax loss harvesting is it's worth three to 13 times the fee that we charge per year, depending on 
your tax rate, and the risk level of your portfolio. That's pretty awesome that you can still make some money back through the tax loss harvesting. I want to shift over to the idea of robo-advisory. So I know that Wealthfront sort of started out in this industry that was initially called robo-advisory. So could you introduce us to the idea of robo-advisory and then maybe talk about some common misconceptions within that? Sure. Well, a robo-advisor is actually, we view as a derogatory term that was used by some financial advisors who were threatened to make it seem scary that a robot was going to manage your money. To us, it just means automated investment management. As I said before, we just take the best practices of the investment managed industry and we automate it through software because computers are better at doing routine tasks than people are. They can scale more and they can do it at lower cost. We can take that lower cost and pass it along in terms of savings to our clients. That's why we charge only a quarter of a percent to manage our portfolios where the industry average advisory fee is 1%. And so that's really the basics. And as I said before, the biggest misperception about what we do is that we use proprietary algorithms or try to do fancy things. All we're trying to do is automate best practices. So I'm curious to know, how does your product, whether that's Wealthfront or another automated money management service, how does that get over the trust that traditional human advisors have with their clients? I think that is dependent on your age. If you're a baby boomer as I am, you've been conditioned to enjoy talking to people. So you gain trust from personal interaction. If you're a millennial today, someone who's 25 to 40, you're probably the exact opposite. You don't enjoy having to ask someone a question or talk to someone. You would rather that everything be delivered via your mobile phone. Gen Z, your generation, is probably a lot closer to millennials than it is to baby boomers. And so the way that we generate trust is through transparency and candor and showing the data. And that really has won us tremendous trust. Our next closest robo-advisor competitor has an average account size that's less than half of ours. And I think account size is a pretty good proxy for trust. Now back to the discussion. How does your software personalize each of your clients' money goals and plans for managing their money? How does it personalize it? So this is, again, a misperception. The only thing that matters with regard to personalization in terms of improving your risk-adjusted return outcome is your risk level, how you feel about different asset classes or what you like is absolutely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is your tolerance for risk. Now, this is really important because there's a lot of research that has been done that shows that the average individual investor left to their own devices, feels comfortable buying when the market goes up and selling when the market goes down. That's the absolute worst thing that you can do in investing, but it's what feels right. This behavior costs the average investor anywhere between one and a half and three and a half percent per year, depending on the research study that you read. But every research study comes to the same conclusion. So we need to put you into a portfolio that's risky enough that you have upside, and by the way, uh, risk and return are correlated, but not so risky that 
if the market declines, your portfolios will decline so much that you'll pull out. Just staying invested is actually the best thing that you can do. So in our case, we ask you a bunch of questions about your willingness to take risk and your capacity to take risk to try to identify the risk tolerance that's appropriate for you. But then we allow you to make changes to that if you want something different. So it seems like the extent to which personalization occurs is just in figuring out a person's risk tolerance. Is that correct? Correct. With regard to investing, with regard to the self-driving money, it's what kind of goals you want to prioritize and where you want to put that money. So one of the people who is really famous for his research into passive investing is actually someone who works on Wealthfront's team, and it's Burton Malkiel. And he wrote this really famous book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I was wondering if you could tell us about his contribution to passive investing and what kind of impact he's had on that space. Sure. Well, Bert was a professor at Princeton. He's now an emeritus professor at Princeton. And he was the first academic to recognize that it was almost impossible to outperform the market through active investment management. As you well know, day trading has really exploded of late. It's the dumbest thing you can possibly do, but everybody has to try it to get it out of their system. Anyway, Bert was the first to recognize that passive investing Uh, was a superior way to invest. By passive, I mean investing in index funds. In other words, getting the basket of stocks that represented the market versus trying to pick individual stocks that might outperform the market. In his book, which was first published about 45 years ago, the experiment that most captured the attention of the American public was one where he had a bunch of chimpanzees throw darts at a Wall Street Journal listing of all of the publicly available stocks to pick a portfolio. And he compared the portfolio of the dart-throwing chimpanzees with professional investment managers. Guess who won? I'm guessing it's the chimpanzees. The chimpanzees. And this experiment has been repeated over and over and over again. And the chimpanzees win at a statistically significant level. So basically what he advocated was you shouldn't try to outperform the market. It's better to invest in index funds and focus on the three things over which you do have control. Number one is diversification. Number two is minimizing your fees. And number three is minimizing your taxes. So when Bert heard about us, he fell in love with it because a book offers one-size-fits-all advice, whereas our software could personalize through risk tolerance the portfolio that was most appropriate for you. And where Bert really saw opportunity was through what we call tax loss harvesting, that service I referenced earlier, because as I said before, he believed that the only three ways one could improve their outcome was through diversification, fee minimization, which we already did, and tax minimization, which we did a better job on than any actually human financial advisor, because again, this is something that computers are much better at than people. So he really enhanced the way that we do tax loss harvesting. Yeah, definitely. And I'm actually interested in unpacking the industry of automated wealth managers. And so How do these firms, these automated money management firms, compete with each other? And how is that different than, say, private wealth management or active wealth management firms? Well, we compete with each other based on the quality of our software. 
It's not a commodity. For example, we opened accounts of comparable size and risk tolerance with a number of our competitors to see how well their tax loss harvesting works. And what we found was our best known competitor in that space, Betterment, only harvested about 60% of the losses that we harvested. So that's a lot less benefit. And uh, Schwab actually harvested nothing, even though they promote on their website that they do it. And we published the results. So that's a, a huge difference in net of fee after tax return, which is the way that you should measure these things. We also used our software to deliver services that nobody else does. So not only do we do tax loss harvesting at the ETF level, but we actually do it within an index. This was something that Bert encouraged us to do. So rather than use an ETF for the U.S. equities allocation, which is typically a third of one's portfolio, we replace it with literally the 500 stocks that represent the S&P 500. In a typical day, the S&P 500 can be up 1%, but something on the order of 20% of the stocks that comprise the S&P 500 can trade down. And if they trade down enough, we're going to sell them and replace them with something highly correlated. For example, the S&P 500 might be up, but Coca-Cola might have announced bad earnings and the stock might have traded down. In that case, we would sell Coke and we would buy Pepsi and then trade back into Coke 31 days later. Doing this adds another 0.2 or 0.3% after tax to your portfolio's return every year. No other automated advisor does that. We offered something called Smart Beta, which won the Nobel Prize, I think, in 2013, because this is something that underweights and overweights portfolio that represents the market based on factors like profitability or volatility or the dividends they pay. It's purely formulaic. Fama and French won the Nobel Prize for doing this. And DFA, which is a well-known mutual fund firm, has built a business that's attracted $600 billion of assets selling these multi-factor funds. Well, because we do it in software and don't need any people, we don't have to charge an expense ratio on this. So we can deliver that to our clients. And then we even took something that Bridgewater requires a $100 million minimum for, something called risk parity, another diversification strategy, and deliver that at extremely low fees. So these are the kinds of things that we do in addition to tax efficiently reinvesting your dividends. If you transfer securities to us, we sell them in a tax-sensitive way. No one offers the breadth of services that we do in software, which is why we're able to deliver a superior outcome. By the way, all of the automated investment services generate the same gross pre-fee return. Even though we all have slightly different asset allocations, over the long term, there's very little difference. The way that you make the difference is in the fee and in the tax minimization. That's very interesting. And I kind of want to dig in, actually, to that last point when you're talking about expense ratios. Now, compared to hedge funds, I guess the industry standard is maybe the two and 20 or personal wealth managers. But, you know, I think these types of automated money managers have an advantage in that 
the expense ratios are lower, but can you tell us a little bit more about how your fees are structured in a way and compare that to your traditional active managers? Sure. Well, a traditional financial advisor charges something on the order of 1% of your portfolio value to manage your portfolio. Typically, they'll only take you on as a client if you give them at least a million dollars in order to justify spending the time with you. But they charge 1%. And they often use mutual funds and other securities that have an average expense ratio of something on the order of 0.6%. So you're paying a total fee of something on the order of 1.6%, not including the trading that they're doing, which likely destroys value in their attempt to outperform the market. In contrast, we charge an advisory fee of 0.25%, and the average expense ratio on the ETFs we use is only 0.07%. So you put those two together, and it's 0.33%. So that's less than a fifth of what the average traditional advisor charges. And then we do something unique. We apply an internet business model to the investment world because our clients don't like the idea that the more money that you invest, the better the fee that you get. In contrast, what we do is for every friend that you invite who opens an account, you and your friend each get an additional 5000 managed for free. So if you invite five friends to join the Wealthfront service, then your first $25,000 is literally managed for free. That sounds like a sweet deal. We think it is. Yeah. So I know that Wealthfront recently launched a new service that acts more like a bank. So why did Wealthfront choose to do this? And could you give us some details about this new service? Sure. A couple of years ago, we were trying to figure out how to describe our company vision in one sentence. I had been challenged to do this by one of our engineers. And I looked at where we were investing our development staffing, what projects we were working on. And it became clear to me that what we were doing was focusing on optimizing and automating our clients' finances. Another one of our engineers shortened that to self-driving money. Now, in order to deliver on that vision of self-driving money that I described earlier, we needed to have an account into which you could direct deposit and from which you could automatically pay your bills before we routed it to the other places. So we needed a cash account. And that's what led us to deliver a high interest. And if we're going to deliver a cash account, we wanted to differentiate it. And so we wanted to pay higher interest than you could get elsewhere on a savings account or a checking account. So we delivered that in February of last year. And then since then, we've been working on delivering checking features on top of that, something that no bank can do in one account, offer high interest and all of your checking features. And we delivered that last month. And now we're adding features that are very, very rapid rate on top of that. So initially, we made available direct deposit, which, by the way, allows you to get paid two days early because we don't keep the float as a bank does. Uh, Number two is we allow you to pay your bills and friends through the account so you can use Venmo and Cash App with it. And then we give you a debit card 
so you can make purchases and withdraw cash at ATMs. And we'll continue to add more checking and banking features over time. That sounds like a very comprehensive service that very much caters to the millennial audience and their preference for everything digital, as you said, and also with integrating things like Venmo and Cash App and all those types of apps. So if I'm looking to put my money in a bank and I want to have a digital solution, I might also consider online banking. So could you talk about the difference between automated banking like you're doing with self-driving money and then online banking, just to sort of differentiate between those two, I guess, digital services? Sure. Well, most of online banking is a commodity. You know, all of the features that I described before, direct deposit, auto bill pay, uh, debit cards, all of that is approximately the same. Uh, Where you get a benefit from us is that we don't have to charge the fees to justify branches. Uh, Traditional banks that offer online banking, like Chase or Wells Fargo or B of A or Citibank have to support the branch network on which they're based. We actually did a calculation and learned that it costs a bank something on the order of $200 per customer per year. So that means they need to generate revenues that more than make up for the cost of that branch. Now, let me give you some examples of that. Number one, they charge account minimum fees. I'm sure your younger audience has run into this and has made them wonder, why should I even open an account? Because the fees might eat up everything that you save. Number two, if you work for a company and you get a direct deposit, what I hadn't even appreciated was that employers deposit their payroll two days prior to the bank giving that payroll to the employees. And The reason banks do that is they make money, they make interest on that two days. In our case, we give you the money as soon as the payroll is deposited. So if you get paid 24 times a year, two times a month, that's another 48 days that you can get interest on your account. Most everyone still needs to send generally at least one check a month. Many landlords still require that you pay by check. Well, people like Wells Fargo, who do bank by check, take the money out when you tell Wells Fargo to send the check, but they don't send the check for five days, so they're making float there. There's a tremendous number of hidden fees. And then lastly, they don't pay interest on your balance. So they take the balance that you have and they lend it out to make money on it. In contrast, we don't have any branches, so we don't have to support that, so we don't have to have these hidden fees. We pay you two days early. We don't deduct the money on the checks that are sent until they're actually sent. We pay you interest on your checking balance. We pay you 0.35%, and we're looking for ways to increase that. And so everything is done with you in mind. As a matter of fact, our mission statement is to design a financial system that favors people, not institutions. That's the exact opposite of what banks do. Once we have all these commodity features in place that don't have all of the fees and costs, then we add value by automating your life so you don't have to spend any time on it. No bank does that. No online checking account does that. Yeah, and I think you probably know this quote, but one of the things that 
especially in the era of COVID-19 with bank revenues declining. The one way that I think Jamie Dimon was asked how they're going to keep themselves afloat. And he just said, we're going to raise fees. So it sounds like Wealthfront and other automated management services are looking to compete with banks by offering lower fees, number one, but also the ease of access and the speed of which you're getting paid with whatever that payment may be, and also with higher interest as well. Exactly. You know, if you think about it, today's mobile banking apps are just ATMs in your hand. They don't do anything more than an ATM does. There's a lot of processing power on that mobile phone of yours. And so we can take advantage of that to deliver a heck of a lot more value. I don't mean to pick on JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon's firm, but they tried to build a personal financial app and failed miserably. It was called Finn and ended up writing it off because it was so bad. Yeah, I'm interested in talking about the future of finance. And I guess I'll preface that by saying throughout this whole conversation, we've been talking about attitude shifting and millennials and Gen Z wanting something different in terms of how their money is managed. And also, you know, Wealthfront is sort of on this cutting edge of the use of technology and fintech. Looking over the next kind of 50 years, where do you see technology impacting investing? And do you see a rapid change or are traditional finance firms, the investment banks, the uh, personal wealth managers going to try to stop this? And, and do you see a big shift in an inflection point maybe? Sure. I think it's a lot like travel agents. You know, most people think that travel agents no longer exist because of all of the great travel services available on the internet. But actually, I think travel agents still represent at least 30% of all trips that are booked. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> you wouldn't have thought that, would you? Oh, but no, not at all. So what tra- the reason that the travel agents have been able to stay in business is they changed what they did. The internet commoditized much of what they did. So in order to survive, travel agents either focused on an older clientele who still wanted to talk to someone, or they went higher end to focus on booking trips that were perhaps too complex for what is possible on the internet or profitable for software-based vendor to deliver on the internet. So they went higher end and older. I think the same thing is going to happen with financial advisory services as automated investing takes over more and more. Now, the research is really clear that active management doesn't work, but active management only represents about half of the fund business today mutual fund or ETF business. And that's because hope springs eternal. People still think that maybe they are capable of outperforming. It's really interesting. You wouldn't think of picking up a scalpel to perform a surgery, but because you read about companies on the web or in a newspaper, you think you can pick a stock. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we're really seeing an explosion today. Every 15 years, we see an explosion in day trading. And then people who get killed by it stop doing it. So I think that we're going to see active management around for a long time because hope springs eternal. 
Now, I do have a question about banking, and we were just talking about how Wealthfront has started an automated banking service. But when you look at China and how they use WeChat and Alipay for virtually all transactions, it's so the, I guess, change to technology was so rapid and it was implemented so quickly. Do you see that happening for banking in the U.S. and globally? Well, not in the U.S. The difference between us and China is that China because it's a relatively new economy, was able to build everything from scratch in terms of infrastructure. Our infrastructure is over 40 years old, our banking infrastructure. And the only way that you can transact is to plug into that ancient infrastructure. In China, they could make everything digital from the beginning. We can't. So it would be almost impossible to pull off what the Chinese companies have done. Europe is well ahead of us in terms of electronic banking as well. So my final question is, with all my guests, I ask the same question as the final question. So knowing what you know now about economics, finance, business, what lessons have you given to your own children about the world of money? Well, I'll tell you what I teach them and all of my students, because I've been teaching for the last 15 years at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And that is, Focus on your career, not your investments, because by doing better at your career, you will make far more incremental money than trying to improve your investments. Focus on the thing that's most important and delegate everything else. You know, I was a pretty good professional investor for most of my life. But I don't invest my own money. I delegate it to someone else because I have to focus on running Wealthfront. Well, with that, uh, Andy, I want to say thanks so much for being on our podcast. It was truly a pleasure to have you and to talk about this topic that's so innovative. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You asked great questions. So, Alex, that was an interesting episode. What were some of the key takeaways you got from it? I think one insight into the financial industry that Andy pointed out was just in how financial services firms compete with each other. It ultimately boils down to these three things, the financial cost of the service, the convenience of the service, and the benefits of using the service. With financial advisory and money management, the fees are higher for traditional money managers, but automated money management firms like Wealthfront are able to compete by reducing fees and making accessing your money more convenient by making it digital. The benefits, according to Andy, are simply better returns on your money. Yeah, and their strategy for investment management is quite simple. It's essentially just passive investing. And as shown through past data, passive investing has outperformed active managers in many cases. One reason why that works is because most people feel too busy to invest on their own. So they just put it in index funds that track the entire market. Historically, the strategy has worked because market indexes have gone up over the long term, even though short-term declines have occurred. Most active managers and financial advisors have failed to beat the market, so it's no wonder that more and more people are looking to have a cheaper and potentially better investment in the form of index funds and passive investing. Exactly. But that isn't to say that active management is bad. Rather, it's just really hard to beat the market. Instead, people just make the decision to get returns equal to the market. That means they won't beat the market, but they also won't lose to it either. It all boils down to opportunity costs. Right. And the entire automated money management industry seems to ultimately be trending towards not only lowering opportunity costs for investing, but also for saving and banking as well. It's one thing to offer returns equivalent to that of the market, but it's another to offer higher interest rates on savings accounts, for example. 
While Andy spoke mostly about Wealthfront, the entire AMM industry is following the same ideas to make money management cheaper and better. Relying on financial ideas such as modern portfolio theory, passive investing, and tax loss harvesting, AMM firms are able to automate your money. I'm definitely excited to see how Wealthfront and the entire automated money management industry grow because they are offering solutions that could truly make money management more popular and beneficial for people. Absolutely. Well, Alex, thanks again for being the co-host today. I know our audience will be listening to more of you in future episodes. Thanks again for having me as a co-host, Rohan. I'm looking forward to more episodes in the future. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Andy Ratcliffe for his insights today. I hope you understand the topic of automated money management in a more simplified way. You can check him out on Twitter at A. Ratcliffe. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.